At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. If you would, please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we will spend our time in this series uh, that we're beginning today. As you're turning there, let me ask this question. Have you ever been invited to try something that will change your life? People say that little phrase all the time. I feel like I've been given that offer so many times over the years, and they're trying to convince me or you to do something or try something that maybe you haven't before. And so they've said something like, you know, you've got to try this. Eat this ice cream. It'll change your life. Or they'll say, I've heard this one. I've actually personally heard this one. Take fish oil every day. It will change your life. Not sure how, I'm not sure what that even means, but I've heard it. Or buy a juicer, it will change your life. Or buy an air fryer, it will change your life. Pretty sure that one will end your life, but people say that. Check out this album, it will change your life. Read this book, it will change your life. Buy a king-size bed instead of a queen, it will change your life. I actually believe that one. I don't have a king-size bed, it's still a queen, but I do believe that one to be true. The irony or the reality is that rarely, if ever, does actually any of these things significantly change our lives. In fact, if somebody says to me, this is, this is going to change your life, I become immediately skeptical and start not really believing whatever it is that comes out of their mouth next. Why? Because usually the claim fails to deliver on what was promised. So everywhere we turn, it seems to be somebody or something that is promising to finally give us the satisfaction or the happiness or the peace that we're looking for, something that will change our lives. But all of these promises, from sports to politics to investments to new possessions, leave us ultimately unfulfilled. And sometimes I wonder if our skepticism about the phrase, about the statement, ends up influencing the way we think about the promises God makes through his word to us as well. Promises that he says will satisfy our deepest needs, our deepest longings and desires. Promises that he says will not only change our lives, but change the world. But today's world, people can't help but wonder, will God actually keep his promises? Not only will he keep these promises, but do these promises have the power to change the course of my future? Will he follow through? This morning we're beginning our series entitled Fulfilled. Now when we come to the Bible, some things we need to understand. We need to recognize that it's all one big cohesive story. History isn't aimless. It is connected and the scripture unfolds God's plan of redemption as every book and every chapter depends and builds on the others. So the authors knew the word of God that was written before. They knew the Old Testament scriptures as they were writing the new. They understood what God had said and they interpreted what they were experiencing based on what God had already spoken. This is why it is very important that we understand this principle when it comes to interpreting the Bible, that we say, let scripture interpret scripture. So wherever you find yourself in the word of God, oftentimes you'll see that that author is making allusions to previous scriptures that were shared. 
And so it's all part of this one big story. So this is exactly what Matthew does as he walks through the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. There are 10 what we call fulfillment passages in Matthew's gospel. That's where he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures and say this has been fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Now four of those have to do with the birth of Jesus. And so we'll be looking at each of those passages over the next several weeks together. And if you have the courage and the faith to trust the words of God, our promise-keeping God, it will actually fulfill the longings of your heart and soul, and it will indeed change your life. Not just one time, not just that moment, hopefully for most all of you, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ in faith, that moment of salvation, but he also wants to continue changing your life as you trust his word and his promises. So let me begin this way. If I put the words God blank us up on the screen here, what word do you think should be put in the middle? Think about what this statement or this question is actually asking. On the one side is God. I mean, God is on the one side, the eternal, omniscient, that means all-knowing, omnipresent, that means he's always present, omnipotent, all-powerful, holy creator of everyone and everything. And on the other side is us, finite, limited, sinful, broken humanity. And the blank asks us, what is the nature of the relationship between the two? What is the nature of the relationship between God and us? Now, several people, several philosophers, commentators, religious leaders, uh, not even several hundreds, thousands perhaps, have answered that question over the years. And so they'll say, well, it should be over, God over us. He's untouchable. He's transcendent. He's not imminent or close. He's out of reach. Or God under us. We are the future makers. We are the answer. We are in control. Or God around us. He's in everything. He's everywhere. Each of these says something about how we view God and his relationship to us. What would you put in that spot? Whatever it is, whatever word you place there, that word matters. That word matters eternally, significantly, not only for how you understand God, but also how you relate to him. As the pastor and famous theologian A.W. Tozer said, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is the most significant thing about you is what comes into your mind as you think about God and how you relate to him. Now Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, clearly understands what he thinks belongs in that blank. And that's what we discover in Matthew chapter one. We'll start in verse 22. He says, all this, what came before, we'll get to that in a few minutes, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, in this case, the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it with me, God with us. There's a lot to unpack, but just look at what's 
in that parentheses there again at the end of verse 23, what does Jesus' birth mean for our relationship with God? Matthew translates the name Emmanuel, a Hebrew name for his non-Jewish audience, and he says, here's what it means. It means God with us. Matthew fills in the blank and says something so profound about the nature of our relationship with God because of Jesus. And in this phrase, Matthew declares that in Jesus, God is with us. It's our primary idea this morning. And if you could slow down your mind long enough just to think and contemplate and meditate upon that sentence, that phrase, in Jesus, God comes to be with us. That will become one of those most mind-boggling things you will ever consider. That you will ever think about that Jesus, who is God, theos is the Greek term, and he came to humanity, anthropos, or mankind, we call him the theanthropos, the God-man. That in Jesus, we have God and man being united into relationship through this person that made a way for all of us. God is with us. So we ask the question, the world asks the question, is that really true? Is God really with us? When we look at what's happening around the world, when we experience life ourselves, all the brokenness, all the destruction, all the issue, is he really with me? Or has he abandoned me? I think that's what most people think. That because of our sin, because of their rebellion, because of our own insecurities, insufficiencies, failures, that there either isn't a God, or if there is and he's good, he's certainly not pleased with me. Is he really with us? Well, this is exactly what Matthew is trying to show us. Matthew points us to two signs. The first sign has to do with the miraculous nature of his birth. He wants the world to know that indeed God is with us in Jesus. So the first sign was the virgin conception. The first part of verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now look back at verse 18. We'll just go into the context a little bit. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And on verse 23, Matthew is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. As I mentioned, prophets served as God's messengers to God's people. And most often, their messages were this. They were coming to share with some king or the group of Israelites or, or, or the group of Jewish people, wherever they were gathered, that they had not stayed faithful to the covenant that they made with God. And so God would discipline them. And that, that discipline would usually show up in the form of some form of exile or judgment and then there'd be hope at the end of their prophecy saying, but God will redeem you. He will restore you. He will bring you back to his own. And God's restoration would come through a Messiah, which means an anointed one, anointed one. The Messiah would bring redemption to God's people. So Matthew quotes Isaiah, who, who, who ministered 700 years prior, to show how Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. 
This is the first of those 10 fulfillment prophecies within his gospel. And the sign was that the virgin shall conceive. So let me just explain this a little bit. There's a lot going on. So if you just don't mind going to school a little bit theologically and in church this morning to understand the text, I'm going to give you some background. Matthew makes it clear that Mary it was a virgin who was betrothed. We would call it engaged, but back then it had much more significance uh, it wasn't so quick to uh, remove or, or, or step out of as it is today. He was betrothed to Mary. And they had remained sexually pure prior to their upcoming ceremony. Uh, betrothal was so significant that it was basically considered that you were married at that time. So he says she conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph has the reaction, we know the story, that most guys would have if she's pregnant and it wasn't me, then she's cheated on me. And you know the story, because he loved her, he was going to break off the betrothal until a dream with an angel helped him realize that she was indeed telling the truth. Now Isaiah's original prophecy was given to a king by the name of Ahaz, and Ahaz lived in Judah. And God challenged Ahaz to ask for a sign that would demonstrate that God would remove a threat of two kings to the north. Ahaz objects to asking for a sign, and Isaiah rebukes him and gives him this prophecy, that Judah will be delivered through a virgin, which meant in the original language, it actually had a scope of meaning. The, the word could have meant several things. It meant in the original language, one meaning was a young woman old enough to be married. That is what the interpretation could have been for virgin. Now, God did provide a son for Judah. And they were delivered from their enemies. When there were prophecies in the Old Testament, sometimes they'd have what's called an immediate fulfillment. And then oftentimes they would have what's called a dual fulfillment or a second fulfillment or a greater fulfillment. And that is what is happening in Isaiah chapters 7 through 9. He says in chapter 9 that this son, this, this greater son that is to come would be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. So God's people began to look for that second son, a Messiah that would reign not just for a moment, but forever on David's throne for God's kingdom. One of the signs of this son is that he, like the first son, would be born of a virgin. But this time, it would be an actual virgin, the way that we would understand the term. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the messianic king who is supernaturally conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin. Now, how do we know this is a good interpretation? Again, just follow the logic here. How do we know that? Because there's so many people who say the virgin birth is just some made-up myth. If the word had a range of meaning, then how do you know it means the way we think it means? Well, the Hebrew scribes who translated the Old Testament into the Greek, it happened uh, 200 years-ish to 100 years-ish prior to the birth of Jesus, they, they, they translated it into the Greek language, it was called the Septuagint. And when those scribes, a few hundred years after Isaiah, came to this verse and that word, they chose the Greek word in that translation from their own nation, their own religious leaders, that meant a virgin the way we understand it somebody who had not yet been with a man. Now, none of us are surprised to hear that people have doubts about the virgin birth. Lots of articles have been written to make the point that of all the things in the Christian faith, if you don't believe this one, well, 
It's not that important. Some argue it's just a myth. 15-ish years ago, a well-known pastor, actually, from the west side of the state, he wrote a book called Velvet Elvis. Maybe you remember that. In the book, he compares the truths of Christianity to springs on a trampoline that keep us jumping. And he writes about this. This is what he writes. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. But what if as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at the time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she was with a man? What if that spring was seriously questioned? Could a person keep jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? He argues, yes. This quote basically summarizes arguments that so many others have made that I've heard from so many others as well. And what's so sad is that it actually fails to consider Matthew's actual words. I mean, it's so wrong. Just look at Matthew's actual words. People raise all these questions and all these hypotheticals, but never deal with the fact that Matthew goes to great lengths to not only use the word virgin, but to highlight Mary's virginity and her abstinence with Joseph before Jesus was ever born. He makes it abundantly obvious. Again, why does he do this? Because the virgin conception is a sign of the greater truth of who Jesus is. This greater Messiah that was to come. Jesus is the one who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy, his sign. If Mary's not a virgin, then Jesus isn't Emmanuel. If his birth doesn't fulfill the promise then he isn't the promised Messiah. Now, if you have a problem with the supernatural, then you're gonna have a problem with the promises of God and the word of God. God's promises to Noah, think about it, those came with a 40-day worldwide flood and a boat that was a zoo. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac was born when he was 100 and his wife was 90. I mean, God's promises to Moses, God talks out of a bush that's on fire and doesn't burn up. There's plagues that overrun Egypt. The Red Sea gets parted in two. If you read through the Old Testament, we've got angelic appearances, talking donkeys, the walls of Jericho, fire from heaven, consuming offerings, people being raised to life, the sun standing still, Daniel with the lions, Jonah with the big fish, people getting healed, jars of oil never running out. You can try to explain them all away, but then you come to the life of Jesus. And when you get there, what do we see? If you do not believe in God occasionally breaking through the normal laws of nature that he established, by the way, to make himself known, then Jesus cannot be Emmanuel, Messiah or Savior for you. Me, and I hope you, I believe in the promises of God. I believe in the supernatural. 
I believe that God intervenes to accomplish his plans and his purposes exactly how he intends every single time. I don't think we need to be freaked out or dismissive or scared or obsessed with the supernatural. We can receive it, accept it, praise God for it, and trust that he is going to do whatever he needs to do to fulfill his promises. I'm good with miracles, and I'm pretty sure God's good with them too. I can't predict them. I can't demand them. That's not how God is. That's not how he works. I rarely expect them, but I do believe in them. And I think we've all even experienced them. Sometimes the miracles seem really big. I remember a story that I heard as a teenager. I don't think in my 20 years of being a pastor here at this church I've ever shared it. Uh, but it's a story I heard as a teenager that involved me, but it wasn't really about me. It was about my mom. When I was born and when I was six weeks old, she noticed that something wasn't quite right with my hearing. Uh, she decided to do a little test, and so she stood over me when I was asleep, and she clapped her hands, and I didn't move. And then she would come beside me when I was awake, and she'd sneak up on the side so I couldn't see her, and she'd clap again, and I wouldn't move. There was no movement in my eyes, no blinking, no startling. She then eventually got pans and banged them together, nothing. She realized I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear anything. My father set up an appointment with the children's hospital that I was born in, in Akron, Ohio. They took me in. They ran tests and revealed that I was moderately to severely deaf, and it was a long shot that I would ever have the ability to hear at all. The next step was to take me to the Cleveland Clinic. And of course, during this time, she's panicky. Uh, so she prayed and she prayed. It was a difficult season of her life and she prayed and experienced God's peace. And then they took me to the Cleveland Clinic. They did the exact same test that they had done at Akron General. It was called Brainstem Auditory Evoked Potential. But when they ran the test at Cleveland Clinic, they came out and they, it was completely normal. She spoke to me, and it was the first time when she spoke to me as they handed me back to her that she saw my head turn towards her voice. I don't know how that happened. I don't know why all of that happened, but I believe God did something there. What she says is that, she says it was for her faith, to sustain her faith and point her to Christ through a really tough season in life for her. Now, the truth is, I don't know all the reasons. I, I know that for me, it, God could use my life to bring him glory, whether I could hear or not, whether I could see or not, whether I could walk or not, whether I could talk or not. He's going to use us if we submit ourselves to him. But at that particular point in time, that's what God chose to do. For what purposes, I don't fully understand, but he did it. Sometimes the miracles seem small. It's like that song, if you've heard it, I love it. It's called Million Little Miracles. A church recently came out with it. This is what the lyrics say. All my life, I've been carried by grace. Don't ask me how, because I can't explain. It's nothing short of a miracle. I'm here. I've got some blessings that I don't deserve. I've got some scars, but that's how you learn. It's nothing short of a miracle, I'm here. I think it over, and it doesn't add up. I know it comes from above. I've got miracles on miracles, a, a million little miracles, miracles on miracles. Count your miracles, one, two, three, four. I can't even count them all. 
And I think about that for me, like when God set me free, when he saved me, it wasn't my doing. It was his prodding. That's a big one. Or when he's calmed me down and overwhelmed me with peace. I can't explain it, but it's just what he's done. Or when he's lifted me back up when I've been discouraged and overwhelmed my heart with praise. Or when he's put words in my mouth. Or when he's shut my mouth up, which is pretty hard for a preacher. Or in my family, or in my marriage, or in our home, or on a trip, or with my kids, or in this church. I could share thousands of stories, big, small, and everything in between. How do I know that in Jesus, God is with us? Because he's given me all these signs. The virgin conception, that's a big one too, and I believe it. And all the others, if they are consistent with his word, I believe in those too. Friends, hear me. Christianity is not some hocus-pocus, superstitious, crystal-cleansing experience. We simply follow Jesus, which means we pray, we read the word, we walk in step with the Spirit of God, we serve, and we open our eyes to ask him to help us see what he's doing. He is not passive, he is actively moving in your life. There is grace all over you. If you are in Christ, his grace has changed you. Do you think he's abandoned you? He's working even when you don't see it. There's little things happening all day long. I mean, you're sitting here breathing and you're alive today for a purpose under his sustaining power. He is at work in you and he's not done yet. That's what he's up to. It's just miracles and miracles. He's supernaturally intervening, sometimes in big ways that we can't explain, sometimes in small ways that we don't even see. And I just wonder, when we think about our, our witnesses at church, when we think about our testimony and the things that we get excited about, maybe if we took the time to stop and consider, God, where have you been working? What have you been doing in me? What have you done in me? What have you done for me? If we would just simply share those stories with joy and with faith to people around us, I wonder how the world would respond we talk about so many things. Aren't these stories worth sharing? Matthew thought so. And God, God is writing one in you as well. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. How do we know it's true? Matthew points us to two signs, the virgin conception, and secondly, the birth of a son. The birth of a son. The second part of verse 23 says, and bear a son. It's part of the prophecy. If we scoot back to verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, there it is again, very obvious, and he called his name Jesus. The second half of Isaiah's prophecy gives us a second sign of the of arrival of Emmanuel. The birth of a son is not simply a reference 
to a male child, but the promised one. The son is unique. And Joseph, uh, Joseph was told to give him a specific name, Jesus. Now, Jesus is his Greek name. The Hebrew version of that name is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the name of God, so sacred to the Jew, that when you come to it in the Old Testament scriptures, they wouldn't even spell it out. It is the formal name of God, the great I am. And when you come there, you would just see the Lord in all caps. If you read through your Bibles in the Old Testament, that's what you'll find even now today. That's what Jesus' name means, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. So the angel says he will save his people from their sin. So this promised son has come to bring a greater salvation than the deliverance that King Ahaz was experiencing from a couple kings. This son has come to save humanity from its ultimate enemy, sin, and the consequences that that enemy brings, the destruction that enemy brings, which is death. And something else is going on here. When Joseph names Jesus, it meant that Joseph adopted Jesus as his son. So Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy. And in that genealogy, we see that Joseph is the legal heir to King David. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the anointed king who comes to forever reign on David's throne for God's kingdom. So there's promises given through Isaiah. There's promises given to David. All of them are coming together here and being fulfilled in Christ. Matthew does make one little adjustment, though. If you look at the original prophecy, let me show you in Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, when you look at Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew quotes him, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Why the difference? Why the they? Who are the they? Those are the ones that Jesus will save from their sins. He's looking forward Matthew is pointing forward to those who will trust in Christ and the salvation that Jesus alone brings by his death and resurrection. And he's saying they, those ones, will know and experience God with them. What incredible news that we can actually say that I can say through faith, God is with me. In between God and us, in between the creator and the created, in between the holy and the unholy, in between majesty and crudeness stands a person, a promised son, and in him the blank is filled in and it becomes God with us. Maybe you feel abandoned by God and think that you've got to work your way back to him, that he's Run from you because of all that you've done and you just need to work, work, work. Well, basically, that's the narrative of pretty much every religious system in the world today. And this is why the reality of what Matthew is sharing here is such a big deal. If Jesus is really who he says he is, and if Jesus' birth happened as it did, then that means that God didn't abandon us. He came to us. He came to rescue us. He is actually with us in the person of Jesus. So in Jesus, God comes to be with us. That truth, that'll change your life. That'll change your life. My question is, has it? Has this miracle changed your life? 
Have you accepted that through faith, through faith in this miracle, through faith in the Son of God, Jesus came to live and die for you, to redeem you, to save you, to forgive you, to reconcile you with the Father, to bring you the miracle of salvation? That's what faith is. And if you've received that miracle and believe the Son that was born of a virgin has changed your life, then know today, since you're still here, since you're still not with him, he's still changing your life. He's still at work. So whatever it is that you're going through right now, you can say this in faith and know it to be true because of the word of God. He is with you. In trial, he's with you. In suffering, he's with you. In danger, he's with you. In victory, he's with you. When you're high, he's with you. When you're low, he's with you. When, when, you've, when, when you're struggling through, through depression, he's with you. In victory, he's with you. In every season of life, he's with you. You've not been abandoned. And so many times as we walk through our faith, that's exactly what we think. We think we're walking through it alone. But we're not because Emmanuel has been sent. God with us. Whatever you're going through this morning, know that the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that we just sang and lifted our hands to, that one, the anointed one, the Messiah, through faith is right now, right now with you. And he is in you through his spirit. So what do you have to fear? What of the struggle? What of the trial? What did Romans say? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And so we leave this place with hope and we leave this place with a story. Are you gonna share it? And that's what we're called to do. That's our mission. That's our job, to make disciples by proclaiming the wonders of Christ. And our lives are full of them. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can know for certain through your word and even through our own experience that you are with us, Emmanuel. Father, I pray that if there be any here or watching online and they have not taken that step of faith, they have not received the miracle of salvation, that today, Father, they would have the courage to say, I need that. I have felt abandoned. I have tried to work back into the good graces of a holy God, but I understand that I need Jesus. Salvation is only purchased, it's only accessible, it is only possible through faith in him alone. So Father, I pray that if you're prodding the hearts of men and women, children here, Father, that they would take that step and receive that massive change, that eternal change through accepting Christ as their savior. Even as we sing, even as we close, that they would come and they would pray with the men and women who are gonna be up front, Father, and they would receive Jesus for who he is. And for all who have, Father, help us not to tire of looking to where you have sustained us. You've brought us through so much. You've led us through so much through every trial, 
Through every tribulation, we are yours and we are still here. That means you are still at work. We're not abandoned. We are not alone. So Father, we leave confident in who we are in you, knowing that you are with your children. You are with us. Help us to live for you, to share your story. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.